Now, while they are going, I'd invite you to open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Young disciples, that's a passage that you'll want to write down at the top of your sermon guide. Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. You can find that on page 911 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs. Today I want to talk about a beautiful church, and I want to do so in two ways. I think that a beautiful church fosters what people need most. Young disciples, that word fosters is something you'll need for your guide. We'll come back to it later if you can't get it now. And then secondly, I think that a beautiful church foretastes what God wants most. Young disciples, foretaste is another word you'll need, but we'll come back to it later. With that said, please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. If you're not able to stand, please stand with us in your hearts. Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Church, hear the word of the Lord. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Church, the Lord has spoken to us. Let's say this together. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So here's when the beauty of cross-cultural life became broken for me. I was on the way to Djibouti in East Africa, and I had a layover in another city. And so, thinking myself a cross-cultural expert, I decided that in my 10-hour layover, I would leave the airport and go explore the city and come back. Well, I had just gotten out of a taxi, and I was walking down the street. I had my pack on my bag, and then I had a little side bag, not a fanny pack, okay, now, I'm, not, I'm not back to the fanny pack yet, but I had the side bag that I kept kind of right here, center chest, that had all the most important things in it. And so I'm walking, and two, two small kids from the street came up, and one of them immediately put both his hands on my left arm and dug his nails into my arm to the point where they were starting to break the skin. Well, you can imagine that my attention was directed to this guy. Meantime, his friend shoves a magazine 
up in my chest about right here and is saying, buy this, buy this magazine. So I'm trying to tell, get this kid off my arm and tell this kid I don't want his magazine without knocking them both out cold, right? Well, while this kid has his magazine here, he is unzipping my side bag, reaching in and pulling out my travel wallet. Now, they disappear. I don't know they have anything. I continue on my way until I realize that that thing is gone. And immediately, my heart, like, fell straight through my chest. You know that feeling where you're just like, oh, I literally don't know what to do right now. Because it had my passport, my credit cards, my driver's license, all my important documents, and $1,500 in cash. Gone. Now, I had a phone, but I didn't have internet access, and I didn't have a card in the country, so I couldn't call anyone. I didn't have anybody's number. So I'm wandering around this city not knowing what in the world to do with myself. It was terrible. I was terrified, humiliated. So finally, I went to the police, and I told the police, now in America, you are, what, innocent until proven guilty. But in many countries around the world, it's the opposite. You are guilty until proven innocent. So even though I had been the one who was robbed, these police took me to the station and detained me. They were searching my stuff, asking all these different questions, not helping me at all. Now, I don't, in my trauma of that, remember exactly how it happened, but I was just pleading, trying somehow to get a hold of anyone. And the question that was pressing deep down into my heart was this. Who's coming for me? I just want to know that someone is coming for me. Now, it doesn't quite take getting robbed and detained in another country to realize this. All of us are actually born wanting and longing for that same thing. God has wired it into human nature. Think of a baby. Baby cries for most of the reasons the thing that will help that child and the reason why that child is crying is because they're wanting someone to come for them and pick them up and hold them and be with them. Think about an older child who's always like, Daddy, look at this. Mommy, check this out. Will you come play with me? What are they wanting? They're wanting someone to come for them. And like I said last week, like we like to think we outgrow those childish ways, but we, we don't. It just, just looks different. Now think about this. Think about the single person longing for marriage. The student longing for a friend or a friendly face in the cafeteria. The homebound person longing for a visit. Listen, when you do something as simple as post on social media and you log back on later to see who has liked it and who has commented on it and you feel that terrible feeling when no one has liked it and no one has commented on it. Like, what are you, what are you doing in that moment? It's the same thing as a child. Moms, when you're overwhelmed and you're longing for a break... When is he getting home to take this child? Okay? Dads, men, when you are longing for someone to recognize the work you are doing and give you a raise or give you some affirmation, someday, when we are in our final hours of life, all of us will find ourselves longing for this. I just want to know someone is coming for me. Well, in the beauty of Christianity, unlike anything else in the world, it's this truth that someone is coming for us. 
that God literally came for us in the person of Jesus Christ. And in the book of Acts, we see the first group of people who fully believe that and experience that truth. We read of them at the end of chapter 2. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the very first church, and it's beautiful. Their souls are so satisfied by God that they're coming for each other. You see it there? And for those of you who have been part of planting a church, perhaps even here at Antioch, and let's just take a pause here and say, if you were part of helping to plant Antioch, if you were there during those original core days, raise your hand. How many of you are left? See? See these people? All right. Beautiful anchors that God has left in our church to help us remember the foundation at which was laid here. If you have been part of planning a church, then you know there is nothing quite like that season of foundational core relationships. Can I get an amen from my anchors in the room? There's nothing like that. Like you cannot perfectly replicate that no matter what, though your heart longs for it for the rest of your life. You see here, though, the first church... As good as that was, they had to move forward from that moment. And as it did, what would it look like? Like, how would it continue to be beautiful? I think we'll see this. That a beautiful church fosters what people need most. Young disciples, you need that word, fosters. So listen to how the book of Acts continues at the beginning of chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. So here's the setting. Two leaders of the church, Peter and John, are going to the temple at the hour of the afternoon sacrifice, which would then be followed by congregational prayer. Because giving alms to the poor was considered part of being a good Jew, it was common for those begging to sit at the entryways of the temple where the pious people went in and out. And so the reason for this man's poverty is clearly told to us. From birth, he could not walk. He had no family to care for him. Now, if you've been watching The Chosen then hopefully your imagination as a Christian has been cultivated more and more to think about what's in between the lines, what's not included in the story, what's the, what's the backstory of these people's lives. I wonder about this man. Why did he not have family to care for him? Why wasn't it family who was carrying him to the temple? What's going on in his life? But at least he did have friends who brought him every day to the temple. And later we are told that he was over 40 years old. And so that means he may well have sat daily at this gate for decades. Decades. And it's pitiful to think about the irony of this broken man sitting at at a gate that's called what? Beautiful. I mean, it is a word that can be translated also as graceful, flourishing, belonging, 
fruitful in season. (laughs) His situation is like none of those things. Every day for decades, he's asking the question, who's coming for me? And over and over, the answer is no one. Until, verse 3, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Now, as all all of you know, as residents of Louisville, Kentucky, making eye contact with someone who is begging can be an awkward thing. Why? Well, one of the most practical reasons is, if you do, then it communicates the possibility of what? You want to give them something. Okay? And if you don't want to give them something, but you're making eye contact, then it's awkward, right? You need a DTR in that moment, like, what's happening here? Okay? Here is that kind of moment between Peter, John, and the man. Like, they've not only made eye contact, but now they've spoken to him. And so naturally, he expects that they're going to give him something. But even without knowing the rest of the story, like, you can tell that something more is happening here. The author writes that Peter and John directed their gaze at him and called for his gaze in return. They say, look at us, look at us. Now, do you know the power of holding someone's gaze? Like there's a reason why we have this saying in our culture that the eyes are the window to the soul. Heard that? Think about it like this. I've heard a counselor say that sometimes when a married couple who almost can't tolerate each other comes into his office, one of the things that he will make them do is sit very close, face to face, and for five minutes, stare into each other's eyes. Imagine the awkwardness of that, okay? You're trying to picture it yourself. Like, I like my spouse, and I don't even want to do that, right? Okay? So he he says that usually the first minute or two is nearly unbearable for those two people. Probably even hard to watch. But if they stick with it, then by the end, one or both of them is often crying. Because they're starting to see each other again. Perhaps they're even taken back to that season of foundational core relationship where they loved to look into one another's eyes with welcome. When they were mesmerized by the experience that someone has come for me. As Peter and John hold the gaze of this broken man at the gate called beautiful, someone is finally coming for him. Verse 6, But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now the interesting thing here is, Peter actually does have access to silver and gold. Remember earlier we read that the church was selling their belongings and giving them to the apostles to be distributed to those in need. The point is, it's not that Peter literally doesn't have anything to give, but that he has alms to give that are far greater than silver and gold. And he says, it's in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. What's that? Is that like some incantation that helps you to have have some magical power to do things like this. No, it's another way of saying, by the authority of Jesus Christ. You see, Peter and John 
are continuing the ministry of Jesus Christ. This is what the book of Acts is all about. It's not about the amazing acts of the apostles. It's the acts of the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Jesus lives in them and continues to work in them and through the local church. Remember back when a paralytic was lowered through the roof by his friends? You know that story in the Gospels? They rip a hole in the roof, lower the paralytic down. What does Jesus do? Like, he heals him. But here in Acts, after Jesus has already risen from the dead and ascended to heaven, okay, he's, he's there, he's no longer here, all right? Poured out my spirit. Ladies and gentlemen, you got it. I'm out. I'll be back, okay? As he's already risen from the dead and ascended to heaven, there's no more physical Jesus around. So how will this broken man ever experience the welcoming gaze of Jesus? How will he ever experience the healing power of Jesus? Jesus bailed out on us. He's gone. The way that this man will experience Jesus is through the embodied presence of Jesus in people like Peter and John. And this is what people need most. Do you realize what Jesus has entrusted to you? His very presence, so that through you, other people can experience Jesus Christ. If you want to see Jesus smile at you, sit with a brother or sister in Christ who loves you and receive their smile. That is Christ in them, given to you. What a gift, what power, what privilege. And this is what we have to offer as a church. As the pastors have wrestled with vision for Antioch, like we've been honest with ourselves that we simply can't do everything. And so we've had to ask, what are the most important things for us to pursue as a church such that toward everything else, even if it's good things, we're like, you know, sorry, we just don't do that. We just can't do that. If we try to do all those things, it will distract us from the most important identity that we want to live into. How can we just be who God made us to be? One of the things that I often say in the membership process, when people are asking in particular how they can serve in the church, I'm like, here's here's the greatest gift you can give to Antioch Church. Just be yourself. Just be who Jesus made you to be. And more and more like him all the time as he grows you. And if you are that, man, that will bless the church more than anything else. You see the freedom of that? The freedom of that. And that's what we want to be as a local church as well. Who did God create Antioch Church to be? Certainly not everything. He didn't put Antioch Church all over Louisville. No, he put Antioch Church right here in this neighborhood. We are a unique expression of Christ's body. So how can we live into that and just be who we are and be unapologetic about what we are and thus also what we're not so we can celebrate the wider kingdom of churches who have a different expression than we do? And so that's what we've been wrestling with as pastors. And the very top thing that we came to is already clarified in our declaration. We pursue intentional gospel relationships. Relationships are what everything pivots on at Antioch Church. And this is why. This is why we emphasize covenant membership. It's a call to relationships. This is why we require family group participation in order to be a member. And why we say the Sunday gathering is secondary to family groups. Because that is where relationships are fostered. 
This is why we want Antioch to remain small. Yeah, I said that. A church that wants to remain small. And then multiply other small churches. Because it more effectively facilitates relationships. You don't get lost in the mix. You can't just come in anonymously and go back out. You're known. You're loved. You're held accountable. This is why we avoid running a bunch of programs and just adding more and more staff because we want to send you out to embody the presence of Jesus to others through relationships. You know what? Like, that's what people need most anyways. Like, I appreciate churches that can offer all the bells and whistles. Like, where you can walk in and you can just be astounded by all they have to offer and the beauty of the presentation. Like, I'm not opposed to that. It's one expression of God's church. And God uses it in His grace. But at Antioch, like, we have no silver and gold. (laughs) But what we do have, we give to you. We are often unimpressive in our presentation. But hopefully we are always striving to be authentic in our relationships. It's how we seek to foster what we believe people need most. A real, personal encounter with Jesus Christ and we think it's beautiful I hope you do too church I hope you think it's beautiful and not only does a beautiful church foster what people need most then second this morning a beautiful church foretastes what God wants most young disciples you need that word foretaste when Peter and John gave dignity to the lame man And when they embodied the presence of Jesus to him, like how did he respond to that offer? What did he do? We see it in verse 7. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. There's almost no doubt that as a resident of Jerusalem, and a daily visitor to the temple, this man knew of Jesus. Maybe he longed to meet Jesus and have an encounter of healing with him as well, but couldn't because he was merely laying with lame legs, unable to carry himself to Jesus. No doubt he had heard of his miracles and his death and rumors even of his resurrection. But did he believe in Jesus for himself? Is Jesus really coming for me that's the question that has to be ringing in his heart as he is trying to ascertain these men speaking to him in jesus name and telling him to rise and walk and so there must have been some measure of faith because the man allows his hand to be taken by peter and raised up and the way that he responds to the healing like i want you to visualize this with me okay use your imagination Don't just listen and look at Brad, preacher, reading black and white words to you, but go there in your mind and picture it in your head. This moment of him standing and then walking and then leaping and praising God like the the vision I got was like a baby deer that's just discovered its legs for the first time. You know, we have this collection of deer that we often see behind our house and occasionally we see a baby and there it goes like flopping on its legs. It's like there's... You're going to tell me there's nobody who sees a baby deer learning to walk and leap and jump for the first time. And you're like, oh, pff, who cares, man? Get over that. It's boring. No, you're going to be like, oh, look at that. 
oh, that's so swimming. That's why a crowd gathers. They're just amazed at what has happened. But see, there's more to this description. The language is taken directly from Isaiah chapter 35. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. And the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Isaiah was prophesying here about what it's going to be like in the last days when God returns to restore all things. When he says to all creation, I'm coming for you. It's time. No more delay. This is a foretaste of the new creation. When God makes everything beautiful again. You see, the miracles of Jesus aren't just supernatural acts. As if the natural order is the way that things should be. You ever thought about that? It's like, oh, oh, Jesus, okay, he came and healed, and so he overcame the natural order of things. No, 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 no. That would seem to suggest that the way God intended the world was to be like what we have in its brokenness. No, he intended something far different, such that when a miracle happens, he is restoring it to its true meaning of natural order. So the miracles, which almost always alleviate human suffering, are restoring nature back to the way God intended it. Flourishing is normative under God's rule. The brokenness of our world is not. So Peter and John are not only giving this man what he needs most. They're giving him what God wants most. Do you know that God hates suffering more than you do? And he wants more than you and I do for it to be alleviated forever and for flourishing to fill the world. That's what he wants most. And so this miracle is a foretaste of what he's going to do full scale. So no wonder we read in verse 9, And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So like, look at what God has done with the pitiful irony of a lame man sitting at a gate called beautiful. Look at how it's suddenly restored to its true meaning. Graceful. Flourishing. Belonging. Fruitful in season. And that, that is the same wonder and amazement that we get to participate in as a church. Listen, like we can be a left brain church that focuses only on knowing and getting right all the mechanics of the gospel down to its tiniest minutia and then communicating it in ways that actually keep people at a distance where we say essentially, Think on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Get your doctrine right and you shall be saved. Like that's not actually what the scriptures at all say. They say believe on the person of Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. It's like we can be that if we want to be that. Or we can also value not just doctrine, that's important. It's at the heart, right? We can value that but also be an integrated church that embodies the love and beauty of the gospel as we preach it to one another and to our 
neighbors. So think of it like this. For me, that's my relationship with Ken, my next door neighbor. We moved in. We got to know each other, not because I was trying to be evangelistically fervent, but because we were neighbors, and I took a genuine interest in him, and he took a genuine interest in me. Next thing you know, we both like bourbon, so we were sipping a little bourbon in our backyard together, right? Just a little, just a little, just enjoying it, okay? This is Louisville. We can get by with that. So next thing you know, we're helping each other in our backyards or front yards. Next thing you know, we're talking about each other's lives. Next thing you know, a relationship has developed such that Ken desires to come be a part of Antioch Church. He's in our family group. We're sharing life together. Suddenly, we're not just helping in each other's front yards, but we're weeping together in the front yard when we experience loss and pain. Ken's coming to the rescue whenever my basement floods. And then my girls write a book about him and give it to him. You know what I'm saying? And sometimes it's messy. We let, e- we let each other down and we have to talk about it and we have to apologize to each other, you know? We go times where we're not talking to each other very much. You don't see each other very much and then it's like, man, we let each other down, you know? So <laughs> this, is, this is an intentional gospel relationship. That's what it is. And it means the world to both of us if we really think about it. So let me ask you, like, when you think intentional gospel relationship. Who comes to mind? Who is somebody in this church that makes a difference in your life by the sheer relationship that you have with them? Speak their name out loud. Say it. Say it. Jason? Okay. Okay. Say it. Say it as an offering to the Lord. Name it and claim it, man. Name them and claim them before somebody else does. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. That's okay. Somebody can just say, my family group. Right? Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the thing, man. This makes a difference. And if you're sitting there and you're like, I don't have anybody. I don't feel like anybody's coming for me. Sometimes that happens in the local church, doesn't it? You know? Who are you coming for? Maybe you need to initiate being that to somebody else, and that's how you will find it reciprocated to you. I don't know. Okay? I want you to have that gift. This is the gift, and it brings us right back to it, of intentional gospel relationships. We pursue intentional gospel relationships. But what exactly does that mean? Anybody ever heard that phrase and been like, I've never quite heard a phrase like that. What exactly does that mean? Let me explain it. In order to define what something is, sometimes it's helpful to start with what it isn't. Right? So here's what an intentional gospel relationship is not. First of all, it's not intentional. In other words, it's a way of relating that's superficial, casual, non-sacrificial, reactive instead of proactive, It's disengaged, it's disinterested, and or distant. 
There is simply, simply little effort being made from either person to make a difference in one another's lives. These are water cooler relationships. Also, it's not gospel. In other words, it's a way of relating that's self-centered, non-redemptive, unspiritual, aimless, consumeristic, short-sighted, transactional, independent, and or uncharitable, unloving. It puts Jesus on the margins instead of at the center. Therefore, it fails to transform us. Also, it's not relationship. In other words, it's a way of relating that's shallow, disconnected, pretentious, guarded, uninteresting, unrisky, and marked by a lack of genuine presence and affection. Although it makes for acquaintances, it doesn't seek to cultivate any deeper trust. And if this is our way of relating to one another at Antioch Church, we are not fulfilling our declaration as a church. We're not coming for each other. And that is the metric at Antioch Church. Like, what's the metric for success around here? Intentional gospel relationships displayed in every nook and cranny of this church. So instead, here's what an intentional gospel relationship is. It's intentional. In other words, it's a way of relating That's, and young disciples, you may want to write down your definition of intentional by capturing one of these words on the screen. It's a way of relating that's proactive, interested, purposeful, sacrificial, committed, and compelling. There is mutual effort from both persons to make a difference in one another's lives, even when it's hard. This is like, you know what? It's hard for everybody to be part of a family group. It gets old and stale sometimes. But you know what? Because it's intentional, you keep showing up, even when it's hard. Also, it's gospel. In other words, and young disciples, you can capture a word from this definition for your guides. It's a way of relating that's eternally impactful, dependent, forgiving, truth-speaking, redemptive, others-oriented, unconditional, and enduring. Because it is bound and sustained on the basis of what Jesus has done, his indwelling presence, it has the power to transform us. This is how the Bible says that we grow into full conformity to the image of Christ, is through one another, building each other up. And I just want to say here, this does not mean happy and neat and nice and clean. This means the closer you get to one another, the more power you have to hurt one another, and you will. Because you're still a sinful person. And yet it is those ruptures like we talked about last week. That God can bring repair. And deepen your relationship. Okay. Finally. It's relationship. In other words. And disciples capture a word here. It's a way of relating that's up close and personal. Transparent. Vulnerable. Meaningful. Curious. Risky. Messy. And marked by genuine presence and affection. It seeks to foster and deepen trust, which is at the heart of all true relationships. Just like what happened the time that I was sitting in that African jail. I was finally somehow to get a hold of a missionary family who lived in the city and explain to them what happened to me and where exactly I was being detained. And they immediately came. And picked me up and took me into their home and basically protected me 
until I was able to get a replacement passport and all the other stuff that you have to have to be able to be a person who can travel again. That was an intentional gospel relationship that straight up saved my life. And in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, someone came for me. I'll never forget it. And they were able to embody Jesus in that way because Jesus Christ came for me himself. Peter goes on to proclaim this to the crowd that gathers after the miracle. He says, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. And to this we are witnesses. Like what he's saying here is he came for you and you killed him. Like, can you imagine if I had done that to that family, that they had picked me up, took me to their household, and I killed all of them? But, like, that's what we did to Jesus. Even though we weren't physically there crucifying him or giving him over to be crucified, if we would have been there, we would have done the same. Because they embodied the human spirit of rebellion against God. That is so dark And so broken that even the most unconditional divine love that would come against it cannot be received and is destroyed instead. You see, we took that which was the most beautiful thing in the world and we broke it until it died. But thanks be to God, Peter continues his sermon. And now, brothers... I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you. There it is again, coming for you again. Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Even as we killed him, he was still coming for you. As he rose from the dead, he was still coming for you. As you hear this gospel, Like, he is still coming for you. And when you experience his embodied presence in another believer, he is still coming for you. And if you'll believe and allow your hand to be taken, he will raise you up and heal all that's been spiritually broken from birth. It won't be that man's story alone, but your story too. 
And then as you learn to walk and leap and praise God, guess what? He is still coming for you. And what did Peter just say here? Heaven must receive Jesus until the time for restoring all things. In other words, he's coming. And in the meantime, while he is physically there, fellow believers, his spirit is embodied in your physical bodies in order to foretaste what God wants most. That's what we're doing here, church. That's what intentional gospel relationships are achieving. And that, brothers and sisters, is a beautiful church. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples. So this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took a cup of wine, and after blessing it, he gave it to his disciples. He said, this marks the new covenant and the shedding of my blood. As often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until what? Until he returns. He's still coming. And that's our announcement this morning, that Jesus Christ has come. And he's coming again. Amen? Our tradition here in Antioch, if you're a baptized believer, whether or not you're a member of this church, that you would examine your heart and bring it before the Lord, not so that he can guilt you and shame you such that you are not welcome at this table, but so that he can heal whatever has come up with his forgiveness, with his love. Okay? Examine your heart. And then to come forward and break off a piece of bread Dip it into the juice and take it. There's gluten-free available over on this side. And if you're here today and you're not a baptized believer, instead of inviting you to come to this table, we would invite you to come to Jesus himself. He has made himself available to you through the cross and the empty tomb. He is eager to know you today, to come and dwell with you forever. There'll be people in the back to pray with anyone who has any need. If you have questions, if you have needs in your life that need prayed for, come and let us pray with you and encourage you in those things. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise that you saw fit. Even though you knew that we would reject you, you still came for us. And you came for us, not just by giving us a law, and not just by sending us prophets, but you came for us by sending us a Savior who would live the life that we could never have lived, and died the death that we certainly deserved, and then rose in power over it in order to distribute your grace, your forgiveness, your love, your presence to anyone who would turn away from their sins and put their trust in you. Thank you, Father. Lord, we may not always look like it, but you have done such a work in us that we can walk and leap and praise you. And I pray this morning, Lord, for your church, your beautiful church, 
that you would help them to come to this table this morning walking and leaping and praising God in their hearts. Father, our tribe somehow has managed to put a burden on people such that when they come to the communion table, they come like it's a funeral procession. Heads bowed, hearts low, shame overcasting them as though they have to redo the sacrifice to be fit to take it. And yet, Lord, you call them to come walking and leaping and praising God. And so may they come with their heads held high, with joy in their hearts, knowing that if you were here, you would stand at this table, that you would catch their gaze, and you would smile at them. And you would say, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Lord, as your people dip bread into that juice, I pray that they would sense your presence in the persons who are serving communion and that they would know that that is your embodiment to them until the day that they will get to experience you face to face. Hallelujah, Lord. Have your way in this time. In Jesus' name, amen.